It's the most wonderful time of the year, and it is the What the Flick podcast. Now that Alonzo, I'm sorry, now that Halloween is over, I think Christmas, I think of Alonzo. Now that Halloween is over, we can begin in earnest talking about Christmas. Right, because half Thanksgiving. There are many things in between that occur. In my house, Halloween is not Christmas one, and Thanksgiving is not (laughs) Christmas two. (laughs) I'm Christy Lemire. Who else is here? We got Matt Atchity back. Hello. Hello, welcome back. Alonzo is here. Hi. We have a very special guest at the dining room table today. That is Matt's dog, Sabrina. Sabrina. Say hi, Sabrina. Sabrina. Woof. She's here. She's relaxing. That's her tail. If you hear any, yeah, if you hear any tail thumping, that is Sabrina. Um, So Matt's here for a little bit to talk about. The Nutcracker and the Four Realms with us. We've got a really jam-packed show of totally random stuff for you today. <laughs> it's a very strange day, but we're going to start out with, of course, your obligatory early November Christmas movie. That is The Nutcracker and the Four Realms. Matt, you could yeah. explain this to us. I, I, before I get into that, I want to apologize. Yeah. I haven't been around for the last couple weeks. Right. I've been traveling like a crazy person. Ooh. I was in New York for a week and then back for a couple of days and then back to New York and then went from New York to Miami, which was amazing. I haven't been to Miami before. That's oh, shocking uh, to me. I, yeah, I, I fell in love with Miami, at least in the wintertime. Miami uh, is very you. Yes. <laughs> I, I don't know why it took so long to get up there. Um, anyway, and then and now back, but... Uh, I've been awfully busy, uh, and but I at least made it out this week to Nutcracker in the Four Realms, and I did not choose wisely the one movie that I was going to see. So this is, I would almost say, kind of a continuation slash sequel of the classic Nutcracker story. Uh, it takes place years after the primary character, uh, I can't remember her name, uh, Clara, Clara uh, has. Uh, had children and got married, and her. No, no, no. Marie. Marie. I was going to say, Clara is the girl. Clara is the girl. Uh, right, no, but I meant like the original story, right? <laughs> but Clara is the girl oh, in the original well, story. Anyway, so it's like, but it's like the mom actually went through this original adventure, and then Clara goes on this whole other adventure, and it hardly makes any sense. Like, they go to this party, and everyone's got. You know, first of all, they're all upset because. And then, uh, because, you know, it wouldn't be a Disney movie without a dead parent. Uh, And so, uh, Clara is looking for her particular gift, and she has to follow this thread into this increasingly creepy mansion, uh, which started acting a little weird. And then she ends up in what seems to be Narnia, but no, it's called The Four Realms, and three realms are against one realm, and there's a lot of silliness going on, and none of it really matters except for... There are some well-shot dance scenes. Uh, the ballet scenes are particularly fun to watch, but you don't need to sit through the rest of the movie for this. And also, huge mistake that this movie does a visual call-out to Fantasia. Mm-hmm. Don't remind me of fantastic classic movies when your movie is mediocre. Yeah, that, there's a lot wrong. The fact that it took you all this time to explain it and you really still haven't even gotten into everything <laughs> is very telling. This movie is... Simultaneously overstuffed and empty. Mm. It is like the mythology of it is dense, but it's also really dull. Um, <laughs> and baffling. It looks, it's like Cloud Atlas and it's like <laughs> tackiness, like the, the swirling, Listen, overwhelming tackiness of it all. Cloud Atlas is Citizen Kane compared to this <laughs> movie. Come on. Yeah, it, it is definitely like, it, it's that sort of thing where, like, oh, we can do anything with CG, so let's do everything. <laughs> you know, that first opening tracking. I'll, I hesitate to use the word 
shot. Right, it's so uh, CGI, yes. But the not even like so CGI. It's like CGI that you would have expected to see like ten years ago. No, it looks like, like it's it, it looks like the Zemeckis A Christmas Carol. Like I, it doesn't even remotely look like. I thought, oh, this is a cartoon. I thought, no, but no, no, no. It's, right. it's, it's or a video game. It's like yeah. a video game like following video game. the owl through Victorian London. Right. It was like cutscene footage. Right. It's like, oh, okay. So I'm about to watch somebody start playing Assassin's Creed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's very strange. And so I, I wonder how much of it has to do with the fact that you have two different directors here. So lots of Hallstrom directed this. The first go round, and then it required massive reshoots, which were shot by Joe Johnston, mm-hmm. who did like the third Jurassic Park, and he did Captain America, the first Avenger, Jumanji. He's been around for a long time, and so you have these two directors with really contrasting styles, and I wonder how much of that has to do with the, the disjointed nature of this film. Do, do they have contrasting? I do stuff? think so. Yeah, I think yeah. both of them is kind of like once interesting filmmakers who are now studio. I mean, Lassa Hallstrom is all about schmaltz at this point. Mm. We're a long way from who's eating, what's eating Gilbert Grape, rather. But, like, you know, he's schmaltzy, and then Joe Johnson's all about spectacle. True. Okay, fair enough. I will say Um, that's what you have as a result here. Yeah, it it does. This is kind of a Franken movie, and and usually (laughs) I try to ignore the the behind-the-scenes drama. And and heaven knows, for all of its other problems, like, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody had two directors, but still, like, fairly, feels fairly consistent, even if there's a lot of problems with it. But yeah, this is just so all over the place. It's a kind of movie that has to sort of stop and explain itself all the time. Like, here's where we are, and why this is happening, and and, uh, yeah, it just, it it is so lacking in delight and whimsy and all the things that you want in a nutcracker, you know. And it just took me back to all those terrible early 2010s movies that followed Alice in Wonderland, where it's like, right. let's take fairy tale characters and give them swords and make them go to war with a bunch of faceless CGI nothing. And, uh, and that's and what this movie becomes. And it's not even good CGI. No. No, it looks, it, yeah, I mean, it looks like, oh, somebody did this with off-the-shelf software and... You know, you, you wind up with these this big battle scene with a bunch of, like, seven-foot-tall automaton tin soldiers taking on a lady robot whose skirts are a circus big top. And I'm like, I don't care about any of this. And what's amazing is when you look at who all is involved here. So mm. Linus Sandgren shot this. Oscar-winning cinematographer did La La Land. Just shot First, first Man. Man. Right. So this is it. We have talented people here. You have, I mean, Gustavo Dunamel, like, you know, was conducting the orchestra. Um, this, the cast is amazing. Kieran Knightley, Helen Mirren, Mackenzie Foy is lovely as Morgan player. Freeman. Morgan Freeman, right, in an eye patch. Uh, Richard E. Grant and uh, Eugenio Derbez getting nothing to do but be in these really cool Jenny Bevan costumes. Yeah. The costumes are great. The clothes are the reason my number is what my number is. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> all my score is for I Jenny Bevan. Look like. Kieran Knightley's totally chewing the scenery in this, but it's kind of fun to see her cut loose and do that for a while. It's rare for her. She's, she's got like this pink cotton candy bouffant, and her dress is like layers of sparkly purple tears right. of tulle. It's like, and, and she flowers. speaks in bubble. Right. She basically, like, if she was doing crazy Helena Bonham Carter, that's. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's sort of like Linda the Good Witch via Marilyn Monroe or something. And, and for a while it's fun, but even that gets a little, you know, that character goes places. It's. It took me like a half an hour to realize that it was Kieran Knightley at first. Oh, really? Because I think I just forgot. Like, I think I, I had looked at the poster on the way, and they, they screened this on the Disney lot, and you had to go past like multiple versions of the poster on the way to the theater, and I just forgot. It's just so overwhelming. I just forgot. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's Kieran Knightley. So it's almost unrecognizable. Well, then there's also, there was also that really weird vibe with the dad and the daughters. Why? Like, like, you, like you thought it was Phoebe? It, 
it almost came off that way, right? Like, it, at least it's, like, right up at the edge of that. Like, the, you know, when when the older daughter gets the dress that was... Oh, that's true. She comes in wearing the dress, like, oh, right. you look so much like that. Right? It, was like, it was a vertigo moment. Yeah, right. like, uh, <laughs> this has gotten But, yeah, I will say... There's not nearly enough ballet in this, but what we do get from Misty Copeland is great, and there's a little more on the closing credits, and it's like, why not make this movie? Well, right, I said that to yeah. my review on mm-hmm. RadioForRogerEbert.com, and I said, like, if it were just, and it's Sergei Polunin, too, with Misty Copeland, Ukrainian bad boy ballet dancer, and if it were just, like, 99 minutes of even their rehearsal footage <laughs> to Tchaikovsky, I would watch that a million times over this. And it's beautifully shot. The dance part. I I thought the dance part was beautifully shot, and 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 like not a bunch of cutting, right? And and you definitely felt like, you know, it was at least if it was CGI, it was far better CGI than anything else we'd seen in the movie. But it looked like it was all practical sets that were moving. Like you really felt like you were in the theater watching all of those set pieces. I think think there was some CG where like when her toe would touch the floor, showers would appear. I think a little bit of that. But I think (laughs) right, and I started watching that, but but even then I was not convinced like maybe that actually is lighting either on the floor or somebody with with lights on the underside. uh, On the underside. But you know when the like when the castle pops up and, and the different pieces and you see people working them back and forth, I really liked that aspect of it because it really, you know, it's rare that I feel like a, a movie can do a good job of kind of recreating a theatrical experience. And you're like, oh, a practical effect. Right. Like, <laughs> right. And the thing is, like, yeah, okay, it's totally fake, but it's awesome. Like, it, it's tactile and it's... It, it's, it's analog. And, and it's analog. And, it, and that was... You're right. I'd absolutely watch that movie right. um, rather than the video game cutscenes. You know what's so mm-hmm. funny is that in any kind of promotional thing or any kind of interview for this film, they will tout that this is a really different and very contemporary version of a classic tale because of the diversity within the casting. And that includes Morgan Freeman, and that includes Misty Copeland. And while that's a really nice and idea, the title character, the Black Nutcracker, and, and, yeah. um, and while that's a really nice idea, it is achieved in such superficial ways that I don't know that that is necessarily like a leg for this film to stand on. Well, and it's also like that's great. You made a diverse, shitty movie. Good for you. <laughs> you know? Look, like we should live in a world where. It's okay that, that the diversity shows up in shitty movies, too. Uh, right? Like, there should be such an abundance of diversity in movies that, like, yeah, you know what? Some of them are going to be shitty. Yeah, Jaden for a night plays the, uh, the the Nutcracker. Apparently, he was also in Ready Player One, uh, very briefly, I think. Uh, the thing I found distracting with him was they make him up in the traditional Nutcracker style, so he's got this rouge on his cheeks. And, like, the gold on his lips. And the gold on his lips, but it's, but it's like they picked the color that you would put on a white guy for theatrical makeup, so it just sort of only shows up at certain angles or when the light hits him just so, you're like, oh, oh, right, you've got that stuff on your face. Like, it's, it's so strange. Also, this movie, it takes a turn about halfway through from which it never really recovers. In trying to modernize and breathe new life into this classic story yeah. that everyone knows really well. And it comes absolutely out of nowhere to the extent that Nick turned to me and said, 
who knew? Like, he was just shocked. I'm like, not me, because well, they, they've laid no groundwork for the no, character, none. the big character turns that it comes And, and they're trying to make, you know, this, this is ultimately a, you know, I said in my review of the rap, like a child goes to Magical Kingdom and learns things. You know, Wizard of Oz, Phantom Told with Narnia. So, you know, this is about Claire learning about how to deal with her grief and how to be, like, nicer to her father, who's also grief-stricken, blah blah blah, 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 which is fine, and you could do if you bothered to write it, you know, mm-hmm. but the way that it, it gets thrown at you here, it's just like, mm-hmm. so sloppy. Apparently, it, the woman it's credited to is a first-timer, but I think Tom McCarthy did a lot of that. Ashley Powell, well. the screenwriter, yes. yes. It's just, it's a mishmash. It's like the weirdly ugly hodgepodge of images and ideas, and it never really works together, and uh, yeah, it's just strange and unpleasant. And then, yeah, as you say that, <clears throat> pardon me, the, um, the closing credits, have some lovely dance sequences. And I would have liked that. I'm like, oh, that's the movie that you could have seen. And it's simple. Right, yes. <laughs> so this is not. Anyway, so see it for the clothes. If anything, um, it's not the whimsical family adventure that you're purporting itself to be. It's, yeah, it's got a dark side to it. Wait for the Misty Copeland clips on YouTube. Yeah, so my number is a three. And as I've had to Alonzo just now, this is entirely because of the clothing. Yeah, two, two and a half. And definitely Jenny Beaven uh, is the MVP. Here, I feel like I'm too high for do you want to change your number? Yeah, three. Okay, so you're saying three. Okay, so what's that for us? So that's a 2.8. 2.8 for us, and it's at 32% um, tomato meter. So, um, yeah, very strange all around. Yeah, yeah. so we're, we're getting a few Christmas movies this year, and we're not off to a good start. I was going to say, it's November 2nd this comes out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is it too early? Is it ever too early? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I think the idea is that a lot of times they think, well, there's no market for a Christmas movie after Christmas, so we got to get it in before. And so usually if it's a Christmas movie opening the week before Christmas, that's when you know they really don't believe in it. But uh, I guess this one they thought might have some legs, but I don't know that it's going to. Well, Matt, I'm sorry that this is the one thing you saw this week. I appreciate you making the effort. So we have Ben here the last couple of weeks. And now we have you, and eventually we will hopefully have Perhaps. all four of us in the same room at the same time. It has Someday. not happened. Mm. It has not happened, like, in months that we've all been in the same room at the same time. It's true, <laughs> yeah, even before, before. Before. So. Uh, we, we weren't even in the same room that day. So yeah. well, I don't... That's why I brought some uh, <laughs> She's not seeing the movie either. No. <laughs> Too soon, man. Too so, soon. Matt, are you going to leave us now? I am going to leave. Okay. All right. Well, nice thanks for coming. Can you, can you leave some uh, <laughs> uh, No, she's going to go to work. Fine. All right. All right, we'll keep talking. We'll, we'll, we'll be right back uh, to talk about all the other crazy Yeah, just pause yourself down, yes. Oh, yeah. look at that. Okay, yeah. we're not even going to pause. No, let's keep going. Um, so keep going. We, we didn't stop when Ben was here, when Ben had to leave. Okay, fine. Let's keep going. Um, so let's talk about Boy Erased, I suppose. Let's move sure. on to that. Um, this is... This is award season. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those movies that has for your consideration stamped all over it. Yeah, and and the intentions, the good intentions, it has also that kind of pedigree of this is a movie that's trying to say something and do something and do some good in the world. Sure. So it's not just like, you know, scenery chewing and awards baiting. It's also got a premise that's trying to, you know, do some good. So um, Lucas Hedges stars as a, a young man whose father is a Baptist, what are they, like Minister. ministers? I don't know. <laughs> Preacher, I guess. I don't know. And uh, he's played by Russell Crowe. He's a car salesman in small town Arkansas. He's a Baptist preacher. And his mom was played by Nicole Kidman. And Lucas Hedges, increasingly, 
Go ahead. I, 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 no, I, no I, I realized that I gave you my number for a beautiful boy. Oh, <laughs> changing you, my you number. Have a boy erased. The mashup is coming. Um, so Lucas Hedges increasingly cannot deny the fact that he is gay. And his parents, his very conservative Christian Southern parents, um, cannot abide by that. And so they put him in gay conversion therapy. Yes. This is the second movie we have seen this year following the miseducation of Cameron Post, who mm-hmm. is also about gay conversion therapy. Um, somewhere in the promotional stuff for this, I saw that like 77,000 people nationwide are currently in some kind of gay conversion therapy. Does that number make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there are some states, I think, that have banned it, but um, there are a lot of places, especially in the Deep South, where it is still... <laughs> Very popular, and you can run one of these centers with no qualifications and no, uh, there's no regulations of them. Yeah, and so you, what they are basically is kind of a quasi legitimized system of torture where queer kids are, uh, you know, they attempt to sort of indoctrinate them and, and punish them severely when they don't play along. And, I mean, you know, yeah, this whole so-called conversion thing is a shit show, and I'm glad these movies exist to expose them. I just wish these movies were better. Yeah, I mean, solid is really the word I would use to describe this. Like, it's not extraordinary, it's not terrible. Mm-hmm. It is well-made, it's well-acted. Joel Edgerton directed, directed it, wrote it, and has a supporting role in it as the guy who runs the center yeah. called Love and Action. Love and Action, yeah. And uh, he told him, find that. Bye, Sabrina. Click, 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 go, Sabrina. On the hardware. So, and he's chilling in this. He's very good. It's like you have all these Aussies doing Southern accents here between Joel Edgerton, Nicole Kidman, and Russell Crowe. I know. My joke was Russell Crowe puts the South in New South Wales. It's kind of like when Mel Gibson directed the... What was the last one? The World War Two one. Oh, With uh, anyway, but like the parents are played by like you know um, Hugo Weaving and uh, and the what's her face from Six Feet Under and Muriel's Wedding. I'm totally blanking. Tony no, no, the other one. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel Griffin. Rachel Griffin. <laughs> Like packing up Australians and they're speaking southern accents and no one will notice. Margot Robbie, they they're all like highly trained, disciplined actors. They get the accent down. So um, it's about how he finds himself and how, despite the oppressive nature of this place and and the duplicity of it yes. and the hypocrisy mm-hmm. of it, how he truly finds himself and how he then has difficulty reconciling that with his place within a family. And it is based on a true story. It's based on one man's memoir. Mm-hmm. It is Gerard Connolly. Yeah. And um, I don't know how much is what actually was his life and how much has been fictionalized, whatever. Um, there are moments that are harrowing. Um, there are moments of intimacy that are harrowing and also moments that are lovely mm-hmm. and, and quiet and uh, hopeful. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of a mess, but it's like a well-made, well-acted mess. I'm very, like, blah positive on this. Yeah, I mean, like, I can't, I'm not mad at it, but <laughs> I just, there's a lot of things about it where I'm thinking, like, A, it, it this is a very straight game movie. Okay. How so? I think, well, for the one hand, I feel like it's far more interested in how the parents are responding to stuff than it is about this guy and his own sort of journey and figuring out 
you know, coming out of the closet and reconciling that with his faith and his family and all that stuff. Also, there's like, there's a, there's a, you know, you, like April Wolf will always talk about like when, when, you know, movies that are about women but are directed by men and they lack a, a female point of view. Like, there's a moment early on where, you know, Lucas Hedges' character is a straight, closeted high school basketball star. And there's a scene where, like, he and his girlfriend and their friends all go to, like, some lake or whatever. And the guys are all, like, swimming in their underwear and, like, shoving each other and, you know, horseplay while the girls are sitting on the shore. And if you're a closeted gay guy in high school, moments like that have an impact, whether you, you're not, whether you're either trying to hide that they're having an impact, or you're sort of mentally taking snapshots of, like, what other guys' bodies are like, or about what being touched by other men is like. Um, there's stuff that's going on in your head during that, even though you're outwardly, it's just, you're regularly doing whatever. And this movie is so completely unaware of that kind of thing mm-hmm. even happening under the surface. It, it just, it, I just, it just was an early indication, like, okay, this is a straight guy's idea of what a gay person's coming of age is like. Um, you know, I, I, like, I, I like the, uh, you know, Nicole Kidman is, is fine, and, and her character does some lovely things, although I've seen better supportive gay moms in movies, I think, this year even. Uh, I was I thought of one on the way over here, and now I've forgotten what it was, but it'll, it'll occur to me. Uh, yes, thank you. Right. Did we talked about it last right. week. Right. Virginia Madsen in 1985, yes. I think, is, is way more interesting. It's, it, it's a more subtle performance of, like, the, the Christian mom who comes around. Exactly, yeah. And so, you know, again, these this movie and Miseducation of Camera Pros are about a real thing that's happening that is horrible, that should be exposed, that should be talked about, and I'm grateful that they exist and that they will generate some conversation and hopefully save some teenagers from being put through this kind of nightmare torture. But, yeah, this is a movie that is very sort of willing to coast on its good intentions and, and, and you know, like, correctness and not be as interesting a drama as it might have been. I also found the casting really distracting. I mean, yes, Joel Edgerton can get a cast of that caliber. Yeah. And then you also have, like, Cherry Jones, who was quite lovely as a great role scene. Yeah. as his, what is she, like, his She's a physi- No, no, physician. She's a physician, doctor. Yeah, yeah, they send him to get, like, a blood test from her, yeah. and she is basically trying to tell him without telling him, these places are a rope, don't yeah. go, like, if you can right. Call get me if you need Exactly, yeah, <laughs> like, that was a great moment, that I wanted more moments like that. And also we have, um, what? But, like, Xavier Please. Dolan. Right. And, and, like, Troy, the pop star, Troy Savon is yeah. in. But, I mean, Nicole came in chewing the scenery, and she is always great. And I just, and I just found, like, the superstar of those two actors as Luke Hedges' parents. Like, I never forgot that I was watching Nicole Kidman and Mr. Pro doing, like, Southern kitsch. I never forgot that. And they're, not that they're not good. They are good. But I almost wonder if, like, they are such a distraction that actors who perhaps are not as well-known but are as gifted or are as True. skilled well, might have given more authenticity to like, it. Like, again, in 1985, you've got Virginia Madsen and Michael Chiklis who are, like, you know, long-standing, very talented performers, but ultimately I think our character actors that can kind of disappear into the roles in a way that these two big stars can't or won't. Yeah, Lucas Hedges is always good. He sure. is in many movies this year. Yes. <laughs> I, the, when I went to see... Uh, uh, mid 90s, I got trailers for this and uh, Ben is back, both of which he's in. I didn't know that he is the son of Peter Hedges. I did not know that until recently, yeah, either. It makes sense, 
Because yeah. Peter had just directed Ben is Back. Exactly. And so I learned that when I saw Ben is Back. I'm like, oh, yes, they have the last name. This all makes sense now. <laughs> but he's, he's so talented and he's so versatile. And he's really good in mid-90s. And he's the best thing in Ben is Back, which we'll talk about very soon. Um, it comes out in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, this is just solid. And I don't know that I enthusiastically recommend it, but it's good. <laughs> I would say if you have a relative who lives in the Deep South and is really, like, retrograde about queer issues, and it's easier to talk them into seeing a Nicole Kidman movie mm-hmm. than it would be to see, like, a good documentary or smaller indie drama about this subject, then recommend it to them. Yeah, okay, so my number is a seven. I give it a six. Okay, so we're 6.5. That makes math easy. It's an 83% on the tomato meter. And I think it's maybe New York and L.A. this week, and maybe it goes wider eventually, but it's, it's definitely being pushed oh, yeah, it for will, your consideration. It will be chugging its way through award season. Mm-hmm. Yes. Let's move on to um, one of two documentaries we'll talk about today, and that is Monrovia, Indiana, and Alonzo being the Frederick Wiseman aficionado. Well, tell us about I'm, it. I'm a fan. Dave, Dave has seen more of his films than I have even. Um, so Frederick Wiseman is uh, unique among documentarians. He is he's kind of a living legend. He's been around since the 60s and still making films and still making really you know, important films. But his style is to be as invisible as possible. Um, he doesn't conduct interviews. He doesn't use music. He certainly doesn't appear on camera. He's like the opposite of Michael Moore. Exactly. <laughs> he, he likes to sort of sit back and, and let the camera take it all in and make us sort of like figure out what we're seeing and think about it. He doesn't even he doesn't even use like Chiron's identifying people. Like nobody has a name in this movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you are seeing a, a farm town, and so you're seeing like how the grain gets loaded into the trucks and uh, how the pigs get separated out into you know the ones that are being sent off to market and the ones that are staying on the farm. You see the city council meetings where they're trying to figure out like. You know, the new developments that are being built and how do they attract new, uh, more of a population, new business to come in while at the same time, like, making sure that everybody has enough water, you know. Um, you see, like, the behind the scenes at the pizza place and the meat department at the grocery store and, um, you know, the, the, the local service club who's talking about donating benches and, um, you know, kind of interspersed with just these shots of the town and, like, you know, the outskirts and the downtown and, um, you know, so he's not here to tell you anything about Monroe, Indiana, necessarily. I mean, there's no such thing as a filmmaking that, like, all editing is manipulative, and all editing tells you something. It's just a matter of degrees of, like, how overtly it's telling you that thing. So you are left to kind of piece this stuff together and look at the sort of portrait of a town that's kind of in a transitional phase, that wants to be larger, that wants to offer more, but at the same time wants to retain its level of you know, smallness, um, you know, it, 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 it's not about, like, the larger sense of, like, oh, the failing American farm, or, you know, like, you don't see anybody get foreclosed in this movie, you know, it's really just kind of the day-to-day functionality of, of this city. Yeah, and they never say the word Trump. Never. And they never show you a MAGA hat. Nope. And there's nothing overtly, obviously political about it, but it is a snapshot of middle America yeah. at this point in time in our history. Monrovia, Indiana is a town of a little over a thousand people and it's about 30 miles southwest of Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. And it's extremely white and it's extremely Christian. Yes. Um, 
And so I was sort of fascinated by the, the line that it walks. And only at the end when there is this annual, no, no, the town fair, ah. the annual town fair. Oh, right, Where, yes. you know, you have, like, snapshots of Americana. You have, like, the tap dancing group doing a performance on Main Street. You have the funnel cakes and mm. all the games and everything. And then you have the T-shirts, the, the t-shirts and the decals. Like, there's, yeah. like, a, a stand where they have all these really, like, racist and misogynistic and, like, a, a gu- pro-gun. Gun yeah. Lots of, oh, there's a whole scene at the gun shop. Yeah. Again, but they don't, no one's wearing a MAGA hat. Some yeah. people are wearing, like, very ornate T-shirts with, like, you know, eagles and American flags and, like, God bless the USA and, right. you know, pro-Second Amendment slogans on them. But again, he, as you say, he lets you fill in those blanks and does not tell you what to think about any of these people. Um, but it is a really vivid snapshot, and it, you just you got to stick with it because it's really, really slow. Like, yeah. if Ben were here and if he had seen it, he would have been really unhappy because <laughs> it, it takes his time. And, like, he'll spend a lot of time at those city council meetings. Mm-hmm. But in moments like that and in moments like... At uh, at a church, there is a, a black singer. There's like a one black family in this town, and then there's one woman on the city council who is a lesbian. Right, clearly she's a lesbian. Yes, and um, I would like to know more about what life is like in this town for them. Sure, and he doesn't even begin to explore that. Like no. they don't have names, they don't have backstories. We don't really go home with anybody. No. We don't. We don't go to anybody's house. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all like the public, the public square. Yeah. You know, the stores, the churches, the restaurants. The parks, the, the school, store. the school yeah. um, basketball is of course a huge deal here because it's such rural Indiana. Yeah. It begins with the, a teacher giving this long lecture about the proud history of basketball here. Who's, the guy, who's the guy who's from there? The coach. Um, I somebody McCracken, like yeah. the gym is named for him. Even I don't know his name, yeah. um, but um, that's it, it. Creates a vivid sense of place mm-hmm. while not telling you the basic stuff you ordinarily know about people in a movie. <laughs> right. And, and it's not one of those movies where, like, I spent 10 years here and I, you know, tracked the evolution of all blah, blah, Like, no, it's very much a snapshot of a moment, you know. I would like to know how that whole water thing got resolved, you know. I don't know. How many benches did they donate to the library? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but, yeah, you, you do have to kind of put yourself in a mindset with uh, uh, with one of his films. Because, like I said, there's no music. There's long takes. He loves process and meetings. If you saw Ex Libris, which is his movie about the New York Public Library, there's a ton of meetings about, like, what they're going to do and how things are going to change and what their vision is for the future. And that's... He thinks... Uh, in his films, you can tell he's really sort of portraying that that's kind of the core of how decisions get made and what's going to dictate how things are going to move forward. I mean, he does it in The Store, which is his movie about, you know, where he shot at the, the Neiman Marcus flagship in Dallas during the 1982 Christmas season. And you get all these meetings about, like, you know, the long-term planning and da da, da. Um, Yeah, I'm a fan of Wiseman. Um, it, you know, this is not his greatest movie. I mean, like, he, I think last year's Ex Libris was extraordinary and really just so kind of moving and fascinating and, and about so many things about sort of our, our information economy and, and, and just public access to, to you know, knowledge and to media and all that kind of stuff. And this one is, you know, maybe a little more focused in a different way, but, uh, but, uh, but definitely worth checking out. If you get the, the service Canopy, K-A-N-O-P-Y, which if you have a library card, you should absolutely look into it because it is a free streaming service that gives you access to, like, 
Criterion movies, the Kino Morber movies, and I think the, they have the entire Wiseman filmography. Oh, he, has, wow. he has a company called Zippera Films, and he owns his stuff, he releases his stuff, he distributes it. And um, if you, you want to go back and start, you know, looking at his movies, I would say start with like The Store or Ex Libris. Those are, you know, maybe like like the you know, Crazy Horse, which he shot at the the famous sort of Parisian strip club, or you know, the, the he's got ones that are about ballet troops or about museums. Like they're, they're really fascinating films, and I, I really recommend them. I have to admit that I had never seen oh. a Frederick Wiseman film prior to this, despite the fact that we at the L.A. Film Critics <laughs> Association honored him yes. very recently, like in the last couple of years. Yeah, about four or five years ago, yeah, we gave him our Career Achievement Award. So I like I want to go back and watch Ex Libris. I want to watch At Berkeley. Is that a good one? Uh, I have not seen that one, but I think Dave did. Uh, he, and, and this is actually coming off of another film we did a couple of years ago called In Jackson Heights, which is about the Jackson Heights neighborhood of Queens, I would say Queens it's or Brooklyn. Way far north, right? Yeah, it's one of. The, Isn't it like north, like on Manhattan? I'm gonna look it up. I'm Keep not sure. It's part of <laughs> it's part of the borough, the boroughs of New York City. But it's a very, uh, it's like the most ethnically diverse part of New York City, apparently. And so it's very much about taking you into the community centers and into the community proper. And so he's kind of doing the same thing here, obviously with uh, with a with an area that is completely the opposite as far as like you know diversity of the populace and whatnot. It's in Queens. Okay. It's near Woodside and Corona. So okay. I, I haven't seen in Jackson Heights. I know that's one that David really likes a lot. But yeah, check out uh, check out some more Wiseman. That's exciting that, that you're yes, now. I'm so embarrassed. Yeah, we all, we all have our gaping holes. Well, I was this one's mine. Yeah, no, believe me, I have a lot of people think people. Think We've seen everything. It's like, nope. And his films are long. I know this is comparatively short for him. It's only two and a half hours long. Oh, I know. Yeah. When, <laughs> I, when I was at Toronto, or when I was at Venice, this was screening, and so was Suspiria. And I'm like, wait, Suspiria is longer than The Wiseman? <laughs> What's your number? I'm saying 7.2. Uh, I said uh, 7.8. Okay. So we're 7.5. It's at 94% on the tomato meter. Um, yes, I uh, recommend this movie. Yeah, it, it takes it, patience. It's, it, it is it is going to be fun and theatrical in some places, but it's also doing like some one or two night museum runs or you know university campuses that kind of thing. So be on the lookout for it if you go to zipporafilms.com, z-i-p-p-o-r-a-h films.com. Uh, it'll have a calendar of all the places it's going to play at then. Okay, another documentary coming out this week, which is a lot shorter and a lot zippier than the Zipporah Films film we just talked about is. Daughters of the Sexual Revolution, and it is about the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. The, the subtitle is The Untold Story of the Dallas Cowboys Cheerleaders. And, Alonzo, you saw this in Dallas, yes. didn't you? Yes, <laughs> I, I saw it at the USA Film Festival in Dallas back in April uh, with a crowd uh, composed of very many former Cowboy cheerleaders. So it was. A, it was a great. That's one of the best Q and A's I've ever moderated. I bet that was. Oh, that was what, who did you talk to? Uh, the director and the producer, and then I think some of the interviewees were there too, and then a bunch more interviewees were in the audience. That is great. That is a hoot and a half. It was. So this one is a lot of fun, and it also has something to say about feminism and about like evolving ideas of. Um, female liberation and what is a feminist in, in the 70s and as opposed to now. Um, it is about how the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders were created. Tex Schramm, who used to own the Cowboys, um, decided that, wow, might, let's sex it up. There's a, woman, yeah. there's a woman walking through the stands who caught the eye of one of the camera people at a football game and he's like, oh, oh, we can do that. And so the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders were born in the 1970s 
and they were very much of their time. It was it was a it was a tumultuous time in America politically, coming off of Vietnam War, coming out of Watergate. This provided an escape and an exciting thing to do to take as a distraction to watch them. They were more popular than the games themselves. Mm-hmm, they became pop culture icons under themselves. They I, were on the love boats. I totally forgot about all that love boat stuff. It's so great. There's all this great old footage. Um, but also, they um, it was at a time in which the idea of what it means to be a woman was being constantly challenged and constantly updated. Yes. And the women's movement was going on. And there were some who thought that the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders were taking women back, sending yeah. them back and, and depicting women as just sex objects. It was just empty, yeah. empty vessels. They were just pretty and useless. And the women who did this, you know, had jobs, had lives, and made a point of saying, no, this is exactly feminism because we are choosing to do this. We audition for this. Hundreds and thousands of women want to do this. We want to do this, and we are lucky enough to have gotten selected. And again, it's like you choose to be a wife and a mom versus having a career, and that's your own, you know, your own feminist choice there. Right. And so being judgy, being militant and judgy is not cool. <laughs> yeah, and it, 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 it's, it's an interesting period in a lot of ways in terms of, you know, female sexuality and female agency, but also the city of Dallas was kind of going through this moment where, like, you know, oil prices were really high, and it was kind of becoming... It, it, it's funny, I moved to Dallas in 1989 after the bubble burst, like, after oil prices plummeted, and it was like going to a ghost town. Like, I remember there was... <laughs> when I first got there, there was this giant office building right by, you know, 75, the big freeway that goes to town, Central Expressway, (laughs) that was all but empty. And on the other side of the expressway, it was supposed to be its twin, like it was going to be these two huge skyscrapers that were going to be connected by a sky bridge, blah, blah, blah. They never built the second one. (laughs) You know, and and like I worked at the Dallas Times Herald, and people would talk about like the flush years, like the guy who wrote the society column would talk about getting expense to go to Greece (sighs) to cover some, you know, like oil baron's party, you know, and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, there was a real headiness to Dallas in the 70s and 80s and the TV show and all that stuff was going on. And so the Cowboy Cheerleaders were just sort of the epicenter of all these different things. And it was like purely a very much a right place at the right time kind of thing. And, yeah, they became this legit phenomenon. And the movie is really entertaining. It is a little bit the official story, you know. It's it's very... Respectful to the point of being almost worshipful of the woman who ran the Cowboys for about 14 years, named Suzanne Mitchell, yes. who died a few years back. And she never married, never had kids of her own, but devoted her entire life to being in charge of the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. And they all had to live by the rules, the very strict rules that she set. Like, you couldn't wear jeans in public. You couldn't chew gum in public. You couldn't date players. You really couldn't date players. You couldn't even talk to players. Yeah. And so, because it was such a coveted thing, to have this gig, these girls, you know, would adhere to these rules, and they were only making fifteen dollars a yeah, game. Yeah, they were barely getting paid. <laughs> a grueling rehearsing ske- rehearsal schedule on top of their actual jobs. Or, or if you were a wife or a mom, you yeah. had a life outside mm-hmm. of it. Um, yeah, it's it's a fascinating again a snapshot of, of a place mm-hmm. in time. I also moved to Dallas in 1989 because mm-hmm. that's when I began school yeah, oh, at SMU. So my freshman year at SMU, I began in August of '89. My freshman year was SNU's first year back from the death penalty. And oh. so, I, yeah, so it had, it had been 
everything had died, right? Everything was amazing, yeah. and then it all died down. You should then, explain the death penalty to people. Okay, so what happened was SMU, Southern Methodist University, my proud alma mater, was really, really good in the 80s for a long time. And a lot like of the college reasons, football. Yeah, the college, and many things, but we're talking specifically about college football. And um, it's because we were buying players. And everyone was doing it. We got caught. And so um, the NCAA inflicted a, a one-year ban on football. We couldn't go football for a year. And then SMU added a second year onto that, um, just for a good measure, just to show that we, we mean it. We meant it. And so my freshman year back was the first year back from the death penalty. And it has taken a really, really long time to rebuild the program. But, again, early 80s in Dallas, football was a huge I deal. Will, yeah. And this is part of it. Interestingly, um, when Jerry Jones comes along as the owner of the Cowboys, a lot of things change. Yes. And a lot of things change not just for the team, but for the cheerleaders and for Suzanne Mitchell's role with the Cowboys. And, you know, it's entirely from her perspective as far as how things change. But all those rules about not fraternizing with the players, mm-hmm. that changed then. Right. So uh, it's, it's a time. And the Cowboys, I would say, or the cheerleaders, rather, they are still recognizable immediately, right? And sure. they are still sort of the standard for that. But many, many other teams now have their own cheerleaders. Yeah. And many of them have, in recent years, and especially within the Me Too movement in the past year plus, really spoken out about the conditions under which they work and the way in which they are treated mm-hmm. and and wanting to assert themselves more as human beings, mm-hmm. you know, and not as just sex objects. So um, it's a tricky balance. You know, it's a tough thing. But the Cowboys, this is, this is a fun movie. It has something to say about feminism, but it's also really entertaining. Yeah, even if it's not as hard-hitting as it might be, the interviews are really fun. Uh, the, 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 the vintage footage oh my God. Of, the, of, the, of the cheerleaders, but also just of the 70s in general, is a, a, a real blast. This is, this is a, a very entertaining movie. And it's short. And it is short, and yeah. it is streaming. So wherever you are, you can watch it. Yeah, it's only like 70 minutes long, I want to say. So what do you remember? Uh, I gave it a 7. I'm saying 7.3. I'm going to go 7.2. Um, there is no tomato meter score for it, but yeah, we both recommend it, so you can trust us. <laughs> um, moving on, our last movie of the week is an old movie also from the 70s. Where's it going to stay in that era? It is a long-lost Orson Welles film called The Other Side of the Wind. Alonzo, please tell us the torture history of this movie. Well, if you want the full torture history of the movie, also starting on Netflix uh, on November 2nd is a new documentary from Morgan Neville, who did Won't You Be My Neighbor and 20 Feet from Stardom and uh, Best of Enemies, uh, called The Love Me When I'm Dead. And it is all about the torturous process by which Orson Welles, Welles got this movie financed and shot, but then never finished. And how, you know, it, it basically only in the last year did they finally step in and edit it together to what they think is what he wanted based on notes and the script and whatnot. That's the documentary. That's the documentary. But then there's an actual film called The Other Side there of the Wind. There is an actual movie in all this called The Other Side of the Wind, which is... And then within that movie, the movie called The Other Side of the Wind. <laughs> also true. <laughs> uh, it is a very autobiographical film from Orson Welles. John Huston plays a sort of legendary, like, lion of Hollywood who is surrounded by fawning critics and biographers and hangers-on, but is still having a hard time getting the money he needs from the studio to finish his movie, The Other Side of the Wind. The clips that we see of Other Side of the Wind, it seems like he's sort of parodying, like, kind of Antonioni and these sort of 
elliptical, enigmatic kind of late 60s, early 70s art house films. Um, the Houston character is having a birthday party at his house. Uh, one of the main attendees is uh, his best friend, a young filmmaker who was a critic, uh, played by Peter Bogdanovich, who's basically playing Peter right. Bogdanovich. Who is a film critic? <laughs> who was a filmmaker who was a critic, right? Exactly, yeah. And was close friends with, with Wells, and at some point there was some. There was, a, there was there were accusations of betrayal, but you know who knows. Um, and so this movie, this movie is set at this party, which is also being filmed by all these other like film students and critics who were at the party. So very often the perspective will change to one of the other cameras that is being held by somebody who is attending the party. Um, There's like a wide variety of film stocks and yes. perspectives. Some of it's black and white, different aspect ratios. I yeah, it, it jumps back and forth. And it's a movie that feels simultaneously improvised and yet very tightly controlled. Watching it, I almost felt like Wells was kind of killing the 60s and inventing the 70s at the same time. This feels like an Altman movie before Altman was really making this kind of movie, or around the time that he was, because this was shot, what, in 73? This was shot between 1970 and 1976. Okay. But like, but the crux of it, uh, the, 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 party the party scene was all shot like in the early 70s. Uh, when I, think, I guess MASH maybe was being made around that time. But, but th- this feels like an early stab at something like Nashville. It's strong yeah. in the same kind of way as an album film is. It is. And there's a lot of like kind of overheard bits of conversation and people kind of walking in and out of things. And you have to sort of pay attention to where people are. But, you know, the, he makes it easy because there's a lot of really fun, recognizable character actors in it. Mercedes McCambridge, who, of course, was in Touch of Evil. And, you know, Paul Stewart, um, who was in Citizen Kane. Like, you know, they, they a lot of the sort of old hands, you know, that are that are still around in this movie. I feel like there's also, in the party scene, I feel like people like Todd McCarthy are in it. Yes, they are, actually. <laughs> and Les Moonves, I want to say, might be I, part of the I think, well. I think he is, yeah. Uh, you know, and then Oja Kodar, who was Wells' last girlfriend, is the star of the film within the film. And she's, like, naked the entire time. Yeah, but she looks great. And she's, <laughs> but she's also at the party kind of being sort of enigmatic about things. Uh, there's a lot going on here. And... And I'm sure there will be arguments for years over whether or not this is, like, another masterpiece by Wells or, like, you know, a sign of a filmmaker in decline. But to me, there's there's a real energy to it. I mean, th- this may sound like something that's kind of self-indulgent and blobby and all over the place, but I was constantly fascinated with what I was looking at. And I luckily got to see it projected. I mean, I, um, I think it is going to be playing in some cities, but this is premiering on Netflix, so most people will probably see it on TV. I would say if you're watching it at home, like, turn off your phone, don't look at another screen, yeah. just kind of, like, be engaged with this thing, and it will pay off. I found it entertaining, but kind of superficial and kind of meandering, you mm-hmm. know. Um, I probably should have watched it projected. I saw it at home. Okay. And I probably should have seen it the way the way you say it, allow myself to be immersed in just the rhythms of it. Well, and I'm glad Netflix is making, I don't know if you heard this news this week, they are going to theatrically release Roma, oh, Ballad okay. of Buster Scruggs, and Bird Box before they screen it. Well, Roma, I think, was going to be coming out theatrically anyway, right? It wasn't Buster Scruggs as well? Yeah, but the, the thing is, what usually when a Netflix movie opens theatrically, it means that the day that it 
drops on Netflix, it also opens in a handful of theaters, usually New York and L.A. for Oscar qualifications, sometimes in, like, Chicago or San Francisco or whatever. But they're actually going to release these theatrically first and oh, then oh, put them cool. on Netflix. Oh, good, yeah. Well, yeah. Something like Roma, which we'll talk about. I mean, that, that has to be seen. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is it's fun as a time capsule. Yeah. We keep saying the word snapshot today. Sure. And this is very much a snapshot of a place and time in Hollywood. Yeah, in, in a transitional. In a fading place and also in a, in a, in a classic timeless place because a lot of the the filmmaking techniques that we see we see all the time now in terms of like it's so self-referential it's such a funhouse mirror film it's so meta yeah. you know and so the playing the game of that is something that happens a lot in movies about movies um and I'm looking at IMDb while, while we're talking about this, like Claude Chabrol is in it and right. Paul Mazursky and Dennis Hopper is in it. And it's just, and, and they're all sort of, you know, bit players in the background, but you got to keep an eye out, I guess. If you're watching it projected, you can keep an eye out for all the people in the background. Um, it is fun. It's, it's a curiosity. And of course, we'll never know if this was indeed what Wells intended with this film. I guess it's, it's a best guess. Yeah. But the, the mystery of it in itself is an interesting meta piece of the puzzle because it's sort of like his rosebud, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of like the last the last dying thing that dangles there as a mystery and it's tantalizing and everyone was trying to understand it. So maybe this is this is their attempt at understanding it and maybe they got it and maybe they didn't. But either way, um, it's out there. And to have a new Orson Welles movie, you know, all these years later, because he died, what, 80... Early 80s, And um, this is what? This is before he was selling wine and stuff? <laughs> I and think on so, TV? yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, this is when, like, you know, you, you he's being supplanted by these kind of young bucks in Hollywood, your Lucas and Spielberg and Scorsese and those guys, and they didn't really make much effort to, like, help this guy get films made, you know, like, um, you know, Lucas and I think Scorsese or Spielberg, one of those, at least Lucas, I know, really, like, got Kagamusha made, you know, and that kind of reestablished Kurosawa's, you know, reputation as a filmmaker and allowed him to then continue to make movies for the rest of his life, and we had these sort of later period masterpieces like Ron, you know, and nobody did that for Wells. Like, Wells was just, like, had burned bridges and he was troubled. You know, Spielberg paid I don't know how many millions to to buy the existing Rosebud uh, at auction. Like the, the actual slide. The, yeah, yeah, the one that didn't <laughs> catch on fire in the movie, but, like, would not help him get this film finished, you know, so it's really, uh, you know, Hollywood kind of did a number on Orson Welles, unfortunately, in his final years, but he clearly still was exploding with creativity and ideas and interesting stuff, and very up-to-date ones, you know, this feels like a movie of that period made by a filmmaker of that period, it doesn't feel like some in a satirical guy. way, though. Yeah, totally. The, way he's making, the, the movie within the movie is making fun of that kind of movie. Absolutely. But, I mean, the movie itself, though, feels fresh and feels feels of the, of the time, whereas you see a lot of aging filmmakers trying to keep up at that point. And you look at movies like, I don't know, RPM or Skidoo, you know, <laughs> or like these sort of Hollywood classicists are trying to be down with the hippies or whatever, and it's just embarrassing. But Wells was still ahead of the game at this point, and it's a tragedy that he didn't get to keep working because, you know, uh, th- this movie just shows you, like, this is a guy who is still plugged in and still talented and still has a lot to say. And there's a lot of bite to it. 
Yes. Which is a very satirical film about, you know, the... The this, industry. The surreal and absurd nature of Hollywood. Yeah, like, I, I mean, I'd say as far as, like, bitter movies, bitter directors making movies about Hollywood, it's better than S.O.B. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is interesting, and it is ever-changing, and, um, yeah. And the, the stuff, the, the other, the movie within the movie... <coughs> There's one scene in particular that takes place in a car, the sex scene in the car. Oh, that's yeah. like riveting and visceral and trippy and erotic. And, yeah. yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's an, I thank you for mentioning that. I meant to bring it up. Yeah, that's an extraordinary sequence. And, and that's a, that's for a director who was well into his, like, what, 60s at that point? Mm-hmm. Like, that's, it, it, it is, it is a really just kind of, uh, Evocative and provocative piece of filmmaking, and then you find out in the documentary, like again, that was shot over the course of years. <laughs> like, really? Yeah, and, and like they, they would they would come back and do different parts of it, and and like you know there was some guy. It, it's all like you know with somebody holding a garden hose and making the fake rain oh, on the yeah. car, and you know uh, I when. When I went to see this, Netflix set up a screening where they showed the documentary first and then Other Side of the Wind. Oh, interesting, yeah. But you can watch them in either direction, you know, in either order. But you should see both, for sure. I kind of feel like I'd want to see this first and then the documentary. I think if you're watching the documentary first, you're looking out for all those things. You're looking out for the, the peculiarities or the curiosities, and maybe it's more difficult to give yourself over to it. Having said that, you really like this movie, so I could be totally wrong. Yeah, go for it either way, but by all means, do watch both. They're both really terrific films. Okay, I'm going to change my number. I'm going to say a seven. Okay. okay. You're saying 8.8. 8.8, so, so that's a 7.9. 7. 7.9. It's a 78% on the tomato meter, and uh, yeah, I guess it's going to be on Netflix. So yeah. you also can watch The New Wells. <laughs> um, so it's been an interesting week. Let's go back and look at what we've talked about. Um, the Nutcracker and the Four Realms is terrible. Don't see it. Matt was here for that. We give it a, some, a low number of three. It's bad. Um, Monrovia, Indiana, a long one I would like, 7.5. Boy Erased, we're kind of in on. We're saying 6.5. Daughters of the Sexual Revolution, the documentary, we're giving a 7.2. And the other side of the wind, we're giving a 7.8. We talked about Bohemian Rhapsody last week. And uh, so go back and check out our podcast from last week if you want to. We are kind of on it until they get to Live Aid. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good one if you just skip ahead to the part where they get to Live Aid. There's a lot wrong with it, but I was entertained. Yes. And um, also opening this week, we did not get the opportunity to see, because they're just screening it tonight <laughs> is Nobody's Fool. Yes. Tyler Perry's Nobody's, Nobody's Fool with Tiffany Haddish. They, they usually don't screen Tyler Perry movies at all. Yeah. So they're just showing it Thursday night. I can't see it because I've got to take my kid to soccer practice. Plus, I am interviewing Sandy Tan of Shirkers, oh, nice. who we talked about last week yes. on the podcast as well. We're doing a Q&A with her. So I have to miss Nobody's Fool, but Alonzo, you have yeah, I was invited to a screening tonight uh, that's basically at the same time as when the public screening started, so rather than schlep out to the one that they are offering, I'm just going to buy a ticket to the road. It's far away, Yeah, the one that they're showing. It's like uh, on the 405. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so that, and then uh, you've seen Burning, and I haven't, but I'm going to see it this weekend, so we'll talk yes. about that next week. Burning is amazing. And uh, I, by the time we get to it, it will probably have left Los Angeles, but I assume it's going to be making its way out and around. I did get a screener for a bread factory. 
I've seen a bread factory. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, no. We'll, we'll talk about it next We week. can talk about all four hours of yes. a bread factory. It's two movies in four hours. Um, yes, I have seen it. And then what? what is big that's opening next week? Oh, The Front Runner is next week. Have yep. you seen that? I'm seeing it today. I'm seeing it today, too, mm. at 4 o'clock. And me, too. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that. So, it's uh, again, it's award season. You've got big stuff. You've got small stuff. Oh, The Grinch is next week. Yes. And The Girl in the Spider's Web, which I have seen. Uh, I'm seeing that this weekend. Anyway, it's a, it's a, an overlord. I'm There's that. so much to talk about. It's November. So thank you for sticking with us. Thank you for all of you who have, like us, figured out. You can type in christylamere.com slash feed into your favorite podcast Podcatcher. search engine, and it will give you us. Yes. So, uh, yeah, we appreciate it. We uh, uh, we had more talks with Matt today about what's coming up next. <laughs> Things are coming up next. We appreciate your patience. And in the meantime, we're going to be here and uh, coming at you every week with a new podcast. So thanks for sticking it out with us. We do want you to see our beautiful faces again, and we're trying to make that happen. Alonzo looks really cute today. No. <laughs> we'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. Bye.